welcome to episode 123 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. This episode, we have a special guest here. This is Agnico Eagle Vice Chairman Sean Boyd, and this is recorded live at our Progressive Mine Forum, which we held in um, Toronto uh, in mid-October. Uh, in this case, he's uh, interviewed in uh, so-called Fireside Chat by our uh, publisher, Anthony Vaccaro. Before that, we have a sponsor spotlight, we call it. We're we're going through uh, some of our sponsors from the Progressive Mind Forum, and our diamond sponsor was Sandvik. And what we did was Alicia Hyatt, our editor-in-chief of the Canadian Mining Journal, she met up with Mikko Koivinen from Sandvik at the show, and I just asked him to explain um, what the company's about and what the uh, innovation is in their company these days. So uh, Mikko is the business line manager of Mine Automation and Digital Solutions at Sandvik Mining and Rock Technologies in Canada. But first, let us thank our sponsor. It is the longtime sponsor, Yukon Mining Alliance. You can check out their website at yukonminingalliance.ca, and they have an excellent Twitter feed at at investyukon, all one word, where they uh, summarize the activities of all the 17 members of the Yukon Mining Alliance. We have a little bit of news from... The Alliance members here, we've got Copper North. Uh, Copper North has the CarMax project in the Yukon, as well as the Redstone property in the Northwest Territories. And they have announced that Dr. Harlan Mead, he is retiring as CEO at the end of this year, and he will be replaced by Doug Ramsey, the vice president of Copper North. And then uh, after January 1st, Harlan will stay on as a director. Doug has been with the company uh, since February 2012 as a vice president. We have some nice results, uh, more drill results from Fireweed Zinc. Fireweed Zinc has their Macmillan Pass project in the Yukon. Just some of these latest results here. Hole TS1810, over 10.2 meters, intersected 8.1% zinc, 6.3% lead, and 82 grams per ton silver in the Tom East zone. That's an infill hole. And then another hole, uh, number 11, the same series intersected uh, 9.2% zinc, 3.7% lead, and 12 grams silver per ton over 13.5 meters true width. And that was at the northern end of the Tom West zone at McMillan Pass. A little bit of news out of Triumph Gold. They have purchased a 2% net smelter return royalty on their Golden Revenue property, which sits uh, smack in the middle of their Free Gold Mountain property. So they say they now have a uh, critical 9.9 square kilometer portion that is completely unencumbered by any royalties and they own 100 percent of the property some drill results out of free gold this was in late october this is into the granger zone you've got 18.4 meters of 0.98 grams gold per ton and 18 meters of 0.6 grams gold 55 meters of 0.45 grams gold so long uh, low-grade intercepts and now we'll take a little break and we'll come back with miku koivinen from sandvik Hello, I'm uh, Mikko Koivunen, I'm working for Sandvik um, Mining and Rock Technologies. I'm the business line manager for automation and digital solutions for Canada. Can you tell us a little bit more about what Sandvik does? Sure, so uh, I'll focus on the mining mining side. Uh, so we build solutions and equipment for mon- mining customers, both underground and, and surface. Uh, everything from 
rock tools, uh, loaders, trucks, drills, and, and, and automation systems, of course, and services. What um, new innovative things are you working on? So currently we are running a, a connectivity program uh, in Sandvik. We're trying to connect as many Sandvik machines globally as possible. And we have about 1,300 machines connected uh, today, sending data to a global Sandvik server where our customers can have access to the data uh, uh, reports uh, and so on. We use the data as well for building uh, predictive analytics model models. Uh, we work with IBM Watson that probably most of the people have heard of. We bring in the domain expertise for as an OEM and IBM is, is an expert on, on the analytics side. Now having a, a larger fleet, global fleet uh, data be used for the algorithms helps us making them much more accurate rather than just using data from a few machines or, or tens of machines on, on a specific mine site. Is anyone else doing that? I, I think there's some competition for sure in the an, on the analytics side. Um, uh, smaller smaller companies as well. But as said, the, the power in our cooperation with IBM is our domain expertise uh, as an OEM and then using the analytics expertise fra- from IBM. So you're the uh, business line manager for automation. Uh, tell us what the latest innovations you're doing are in, in automation are. Uh, so for the automation, we have the Automine uh, product family. It's been around for quite some time. Uh, the first system was implemented already in 2004 in, in Chile uh, on, on uh, loaders, where we had one operator running four automated or semi-autonomous loaders uh, at a time. We've naturally developed over the years. It's been 14 years now. Uh, so the systems are more productive now, easier to implement. And, and that's the latest uh, improvement we have now included automated haulage on ramps and we can we can take the underground trucks also to surface in the automation mode. What kind of benefits are Sandvik's clients seeing from using some of your automated technology? Uh, That's a great question Uh, and I would like to invite everybody to have a look at our video on on Casa Parati, Hecla Mine in in Quebec. Uh, The video is called For the Long Haul on, on YouTube where we have the customer actually explaining the benefits they are getting out of the automated truck. They've been running it for a year now on a transferable, and, and they are talking about 30% uh, lower maintenance costs. It's really much less damage than in, in, in manual operation. 35 to 40% increase in, uh, in utilization. Safety, naturally, a big one, removing people from the machines and actually operating from surface. And another interesting topic is uh, a person, the operator commenting about his plans to be a mining a miner, had no experience in mining, but he's now has actually become an auto mine truck operator, operating from surface, but being uh, in the mining industry. Do you have uh, any other examples of, of client benefits from, from uh, automation? Well, unfortunately, usually the customers don't share all, all the numbers, but we do see similar results in, uh, in most of the mine sites, uh, at, at what we are seeing at Hecla. Longer machine life as well. Naturally, Hecla, they've only been operating for a year, so you can't really tell yet, but the mines that have been operating for several years, uh, especially on the trucking side, we can see that actually the economic 
equipment life is, is longer than with manual equipment. And I guess how open are uh, mining companies uh, at this moment to using automated technology? Is it something that, the, that they're looking for? Uh, I would say most of them are starting to look for it now. There is, uh, is a feeling of trust. There's so many reference cases, successful reference cases now I- in the market that uh, mining companies are not afraid so much of the technology. Does it work? They see it, it is working, it's bringing the results. And the question is more on, on the application, how you fit the automation technology into an existing mine and, and, and get the benefits. And now let's continue with our fireside chat with Sean Boyd, interviewed by our publisher, Anthony Vaccaro. This is at our Progressive Mind Forum in Toronto. Please, Sean, have a seat. So, as you alluded to in your speech, Paul Penna, the presence of Paul woven into the fabric of Agnico Eagle. After Paul passed on, you've been now the CEO for 20 years. That's incredible stability at the top of a company that at the same time has gone through incredible growth. Can you talk a little bit, first off, on the, the culture that you've created and how that's fed into the success that you've been able to have? The culture, we look at that as a tremendous competitive advantage because I think how it manifests itself is what I was just saying in the introduction is that what that results in is people coming to work every day looking to make a contribution. And I think there's an important tie-in to innovation. If you want innovation to work, it's only going to work or it's going to work best at companies that actually have a sound, solid business and they have a workforce that's coming to work every day making that contribution. So I think with Ignico, it's we don't sort of spend time thinking every day, boy, you know, we need to do this for the culture, we need to do that for the culture. It's just ingrained and it was ingrained, I think, in all of us as we looked at the example that you referred to with Paul Penna. I remember the first time I met him, and the table that I was sitting at as a young auditor is in my office right now, and Paul walked in, um, didn't look like the CEO, could have been the janitor, just the way he would carry himself. He had a briefcase, it was a brown briefcase, and I said, geez, that's a nice briefcase, and he goes, here, have it. Oh, no, I, I can't take it, I'm the auditor. He started to empty out the papers and said, yeah, I got it last week, here, take it. Um, I made the mistake once of saying I liked lemon meringue pie. The next day he was in with 10 pies. So I sort of learned quickly, you know, don't say you like something because he was one of these generous charitable guys. So, you know, part of the things that have made us successful is, sure, we have to make, we have to get results. We have to make money for our shareholders. We have to make this a long-term investment. We just found ourselves in a position where we felt that you just have to run a good business that happens to be a gold mining business. If you do that, 
and you look after your employees and you look after those communities, as we mentioned, you'll be a huge success, and we've been fortunate to be able to do that. I want to drill down on that a little bit more. Paul was this big personality for the younger generation here that maybe doesn't know the history. Strongly recommend to, to read up on Paul. Agnico celebrated its 60th anniversary last year, so there's some great literature there. But when you're coming in as a CEO and you were an auditor, you weren't a mining person by training, and you're under, in some ways, there's this large shadow of Paul Penna. How, I'd just like to, to know more about Sean Boyd, the person. How was that for you? Was there any, thinking back 20 years ago, what were some of the challenges you faced in coming in as the leader of a company that was very defined by such a big personality in the industry? Yeah, I, I never really thought of you know, following in somebody's footsteps. I was honored to have the responsibility, but we quickly had to get back down to business because the revenue was only 50 million. Our EBITDA was around four million. We were making no money. We actually had no money. We had to quickly go out and raise money because we had a good deposit at Laurent. We had exceptional skills. So the challenge there was to take the exceptional skills and the great people with a world-class deposit and build a business from there in a way that, as we said, made contributions in the communities with our employees and for the shareholders. So I think it was not sort of worried about you know, what the legacy was or anything like that. It was just getting down to business and trying to just create a great solid business. And let, let's stay with that a bit. So La Ronde, fantastically rich, one of the great deposits in Canadian mining history, lets you build up a technical team. And from 2010 to 2015 in that range, when I was still a reporter, you had one of the most ambitious growth profiles of any mining company. Five mines you were constructing, relatively in a very tight time order. You need incredible technical skill to do that. Can you talk a little bit about how you're able to generate that internal intellectual capital and that expertise and how that's played into your, to your growth? It's a key part of the strategy. Uh, as many of you know, we build our own mines. So our job is to allocate capital. And so we feel more comfortable allocating capital when our people who have a vested interest are essentially driving the bus, rather than turning it over to an engineering firm and say, hey, why don't you build that mine, call us in three years, give us the keys, and we hope everything works. So uh, we take very much a hands-on approach, and you have to think long-term. And I think for us is that when we attract employees, they get that sense right away that we take our lead from the technical people, we allocate capital consistently over time. So we're not, uh, you know, there are many resource companies out there that will spend, you know, based on the gold price in a pattern like that. Agnico invests steadily over time, and that's how you keep good people. And that's how you keep good people committed and energized and bringing good ideas forward and making a difference. So that's sort of ingrained in the way we think. How, does that factor in, do you think, in your estimation on the, I mean, we're here speaking about innovation having that kind of steady investment through the, the good times and the bad, having that technical team, how does that produce more of a fertile ground for innovation or not? Just how does innovation tie in with Well, innovation is like exploration. If you don't drill, you're not going to find anything. So if you don't invest in technology and ideas and invest in your people who are bringing those ideas forward, then you're not going to improve your business. So I think that's ingrained in the way we think. There are many, many more good ideas than the capital that we're willing to allocate in the business at $1,200 gold. But the people know that if they come forward with a good idea, we'll find a way to fund it. And that's the way we've run the business for many, many years. And so when we get ideas at certain sites to 
dramatically change the cost structure or improve, improve the efficiencies based on introducing a new technology, then we listen as much as we listen when we've got a good drill result uh, at a deposit. Good example is the railveyor at Goldex. Old technology applied in an innovative way, which lowers the cost as we go deeper. La Ronde, deep mine, you mentioned that. So La Ronde, a world-class deposit, but not an easy mine. You know, would we have thought 20 years ago that we'd be mining below three kilometers? No. Why are we able to do it? The people. Always thinking about ways to do things better, ways to do things cheaper uh, in terms of less cost, ways to do things safer. And we're as productive now at three kilometers as we were in the upper parts of that mine. So we just generally take the lead from the technical side in terms of where we should put the emphasis and how we should allocate capital and follow up on good ideas. And for some people that, that aren't aware, I mean with Goldex, Goldex there was massive technical difficulties and you guys, a lot of companies would have just thrown up their hands. Instead you guys pivoted, George Hemingway spoke earlier about pivoting, and if I, memory serves correct, it was then a, you went to a satellite deposit on the property yeah. and were able to keep the operations going. And can you talk a little bit about that? Well, Goldex, there's many good examples of uh, how we think at Goldex. And Goldex was an asset that we first got involved with in 1971. And it took us 37 years to figure it out, to get it into production. One of our consultants for many, many years, Mr. Wenzel Hubachek, who's 95 and still around, he told me when I became CEO, he said, whatever you do, do not sell Goldex. And his experience was being mine managers along Highway 117 in the Abitibi in the 50s. So he, he said, look, you're going to get underground. There's going to be lots of gold there. Uh, so we finally got a mine built and established and essentially making money mining 1.6 grams per ton underground. We had an issue with rock stability. Uh, we had consultants suggest that there was an issue. Within days, we had that mine closed. So we reacted quickly. Uh, the board met at 2 o'clock on an afternoon uh, within days of receiving a second opinion on the ground conditions. And in that board meeting at 2 o'clock, within a half an hour, one of the directors said, what time's the night shift? And uh, Eve Shirkus at the time, the COO, said it's 4 o'clock. Call the mine. There's no night shift tonight. And so we had a management team on site that then had to respond and react very quickly with employees, with the community, with the regulators, us with the market. But this is the people part of Igneco's equation. Within half an hour, the decision was made, what are we going to tell the employees? You're going to tell the employees not to worry. You're going to go home. We're not sure how long. Don't worry for three months. You're all going to get full pay. And so it's no surprise that the workforce kept thinking about ways to resurface value. And that mine is up and running now. That mine's making extremely good money, mining 1.6 grams underground. We're employing technology like railveyor systems in, and the deposit continues to go and continues to get deeper. And so that's the way we think. Long-term, invest long-term, invest with your people. But again, it wasn't a reckless decision to go back. We, our team, decided we should hire the three foremost experts on rock mechanics, hydrogeology in Canada. And that was a panel that worked with our team, oversaw what the team was doing, vetted the plans, and then we had hired an engineering firm on top of them to do a further risk assessment before we put $90 million back at Goldex 
to get a base case working of three and a half years mine life. Well, it's been running for more than, th restarted for more than three and a half years. There's probably another 10 years, and there's, if you drive by, look in the neighborhood, there's a few drills hanging around there um, because that deposit's likely going to grow. Goldex in Quebec, Laurent in Quebec. Uh, sometimes when you've spoken publicly, you, you talk about the business in terms of platforms. You have the Quebec platform, none of it platform, with Meadowbank operating and Meliadine coming online. The Mexico platform and the, the Finland platform. Also, you've pointed to one of the secrets of the Agnico's success is make, creating a manageable business. So, four platforms, you're now a global producing miner. What is, how do you mitigate against the risk in your next phase of growth, if it is about adding another platform? How do you maintain a manageable business? The beauty about this uh, current growth phase, as we bring on Meliadine and Nunavut, and we bring on the Amaruk uh, satellite deposit, both next year, we will see our production go to over 2 million ounces a year. Based on our pipeline, we can get to 2.2, maybe a little bit higher than that. Uh, we're still working on some of the opportunities like Kirkland Lake and that camp there. So even with significantly more production than what we're producing today, which is about 1.6 million ounces, we're still the same four regions with the same number of mines. So that's an extremely manageable business. But with the capacity that there could be a fifth region if it fit. Do we need a fifth region to create value going forward? We don't. Do we need to do big M&A and buy production to create value? We, we do not. Are we always focused on the pipeline? Yes, because we're thinking long term. But for us, it's a matter of understanding and managing risk. And as we look at risk, not allowing that to get in the way of opportunity. And we've built this business on taking geological risk by keeping political risk low, by keeping financial risk low, by keeping execution risk low, by keeping technical risk low, by not introducing excessive risk when we do M&A so that our, we can follow our geologists. I'll do a commercial for Elaine Blackburn. He would never say this, very quiet guy has been with us for almost 30 years running exploration. We were up at Meliadine, and he was talking about how many ounces he's discovered in his career. And he estimates roughly 45 million ounces. So that's a key part of our strength, is making sure that we uh, put ourselves in a position to be successful, invest consistently in exploration over time, and always keep an eye on the long term and keep an eye on the pipeline and support good ideas. Fantastic. And I think a lot of that comes out of your strong relationships with junior miners and taking minority interest and in staying on. I mean, Nico's been a pioneer in a lot of companies. Larger companies are now following in suit. There was, I'd like to ask you a question. There was one question that came up during the first panel. We're, we're taking live questions from the audience, and we didn't get a chance to do it. And as you're speaking, it comes back to me. And the idea was that with, with collaboration in the industry, whether that be through M&A or other collaborative exercises, does that factor into ushering in a new wave of innovation? And I'm thinking specifically with your large transaction with Yamana for Canadian Malartic with the acquisition of a Cisco. Is there anything to that? Is, does that collaboration now working with Yamana on an important mine foster more innovation? I think one of the hallmarks of the mining industry, which sort of surprised me when I first uh, got involved with it, was how cooperative companies were with reciprocal site visits. It was almost something that was just second nature and ongoing. And companies weren't sort of overly protective of things that they 
had come to know or come to learn or implement. And that's still the case today. So I think you're going to continue. I, the industry has to do that. This is not getting any easier. It gets tougher all the time and uh, continues to be challenging. So whether it's companies coming together to create a stronger base and foundation, that's a good thing. Um, the quick cost savings have happened as companies over the last few years deconstructed and took out overhead and took out fat and uh, tried to take out complexity. The last costs that I think are in there are probably overhead costs. So if we can get some smart mergers that actually eliminate overhead, I think that would be good. But it's really about risk and how much risk you're w willing to take on. In, in terms of the Osisco deal of Canadian Malarctic, uh, Gold Corp announced their bid, their hostile bid on a Monday. We were actually on our way to Kittala in Finland. Our plane landed to refuel, and I had seen, the, saw the press release, called someone who I thought would be an advisor to Osisco, turned out to be the, uh, an advisor. I got back Wednesday night. They were in my office Thursday morning. We were meeting with Osisco on Saturday. So Agnico Eagle was the first guys in the data room, the first guys to complete their work, the first guys to express a view on value. Then we sat for three months. Why? Because we weren't going to do a deal or we weren't going to bite on a structure that we weren't comfortable with. If it wasn't going to happen the way we wanted it to happen, we weren't going to do it, even though it was in our backyard, even though our employees would drive by it every day hundreds of times. We just waited for an opening, and uh, it didn't take long once we were invited to actually put something more formal on paper. That deal was wrapped up in three days, and the structure that I talked about in that first meeting three day, four days after the hostile bid was essentially the structure that was used to create the the transaction. And we're happy we own it. It was a well-built mine, a lot of great employees. You can see the productivity improvement since 2014. One of the reasons we wanted to get involved is we thought there was tremendous exploration potential outside of the pits. And we continue to drill and we have Odyssey, we have East Malartic, there's other areas in that property. It will likely get bigger. So we're happy to own it. It's now part of mining lore that yourself, Peter Maroney, and Sean Rusin got together on a weekend and, and hammered out the deal. Is that, is that yeah, accurate? They got together, sat around that same table where Paul Penna was trying to force that briefcase on me. That same small table. So there's a lot of history at that table. Full circle. Fantastic. Um, so we've talked about stability at the top. How does that factor into succession planning? I mean, you've had this incredible run under Paul's leadership, now under your leadership. How does Ignico approach, in the context of that kind of stability, how do you approach the session planning? Well, it's, uh, it's a discussion that uh, is, is a constant with the board. If you look at the board's job, it's to get the strategy right and make sure the right leadership is being developed. So it's a constant topic. It's not one of these things where uh, we wait for an event to happen and then we try to work on it quickly. So we see it as a broad-based approach to identify particularly on the technical side, those technical people that can actually connect all the dots and uh, understand what it takes to create value. It's not easy to do. And uh, what we do to help foster that development is we give them uh, new roles, different roles. We get them exposed to our investor base. So we were at the Denver Gold Forum a couple of weeks ago, and Ignico Eagle takes 13 people to the Denver Gold Forum. Why? Because we have technical people there that we want sitting in a room 
having a dialogue with our owners and our shareholders so they can say, hey, that kind of makes sense. When we started that plan a few years back, I had a mine manager after about three meetings say, what's EBITDA? What's net debt to EBITDA? And I'd explain it. Now I understand what you guys are asking for when you come up to the mine and want to do this or want to do that. So that's important that the technical side is comfortable with finance, comfortable with investor relations, comfortable with the market, uh, because one of the challenges in this industry is getting capital. And for a huge pool of capital, they just look at this industry as uninvestable. And so companies have to basically, when we go into meetings, uh, we go into meetings knowing that someone sitting on the other end of this table, or the other side of the table, doesn't have to buy a gold stock. You basically have to make the case that this is a great business that happens to be a gold mine. And so for us, in terms of developing those leaders, we want to make sure that they make that connection. And so that makes them better engineers and better technical people. So the other thing that we've done is we created back in 2012, on the back of some challenges at Meadowbank, on the back of some challenges at Goldex, coming off of you know building the five mines, we created a business strategy group just to pay people to think about our business. So it's important when we look at the high potential leaders that they get exposure in the business strategy group. They get exposure in corporate development. They get exposure in investor relations. And we throw them into responsibilities outside their comfort zone. For example, the gentleman that runs Nunavut, Dominic Girard, VP Nunavut, summer student, started at La Ronde, a metallurgist. Everybody knows that when Kitala started with an autoclave, autoclaves can you know, be temperamental. We had some challenges. Recovery was expected to be mid 80%. It started off at 30 and 35 and 40, so it wasn't good. We sent him over. He was part of the team that fixed it. He did such a great job. We said, our next biggest challenge is Meadowbank. Would you like to go to Meadowbank? That's your reward. You're going to go to Meadowbank. Um, so here's a metallurgist, never really run a big team. We put him in charge of our biggest mine that had some challenges and issues. But we set him up with a, a veteran industry person to sort of guide him turn that place around, we brought him to Toronto. Technical services, mine planning, budgeting. And then when we looked at Meliadine and we looked at Amaruk and we said, boy, that's going to be a huge platform for us. You need people that can carry these things because you're dealing with nature. Stuff happens. And so you need a leader. And so we asked him, said, look, you know, we're moving into this next phase. It's going to be a huge part of our business. You know, we'd like you to take on that challenge. He said, well, I have to speak to my family and everything. And most people will take a week or two weeks. Next morning, he comes in, says, thanks for the confidence. He says, I'm happy to do this. And he says, by the way, your Nunavut platform will be producing a million ounces a year one day. Boy, that's what you want. So when we look at our corporate chart, and I talk to the board about this every quarter, as we watch it, and we look at the different roles in the boxes, there's no empty spaces. If you're a headhunter or placement, anybody out here, don't call us. We don't, we don't need you. We've got a lineup of people coming into each box. And that's been a strength. We want to hire internal as much as we can. Not that we haven't hired external, but people get the culture. They work together. Why have we been successful? Not because our people are technically good. But the leadership has worked with each other for so long. When we sit around that little table again, coming back to the table, and we're shooting an idea around, 
I don't have to sit there as CEO and say, oh, that guy's telling me that because he's trying to outdo that person over there. These guys work together, they hang out together, their wives are friends. There's a trust factor that exists. So when we're making big capital decisions like Meliadine, 900 million US, when we're ready to go, we're ready to go. Because not only have we vetted it, but we're turning it over to people that we trust with the experience and the track record to make sure it happens. There's that word trust. It's so integral to getting good business done. When it's there, you can move forward. Uh, I did want to, we need to wrap up very quickly, uh, but I did want to highlight something that I find very interesting, and that is the five million that Agnico has given to start up a university in Nunavut. Can you speak to why, that's a significant commitment of capital. Why did you choose to allocate that's it That's easy, that's, that was an easy one. We just find Nunavut is one of these rare places in the world today from a mining perspective. It's one of those rare places that has tremendous mineral potential, but you could actually get things done. The Inuit are not anti-mining. The Inuit, Nunavut was set up, the residents of Nunavut, the 40,000 or so residents of Nunavut, when it was set up, Nunavut, in 1999, they took a cash payment from the federal government. They also took 18% direct ownership in the landmass. They selected the 18% beside geological consultants that said, look, here's the 18% with the best potential. They're in the mining business. They're in the resource development business. And so they're looking for partners like Agnico Eagle with the experience of being up there for 10 years to get that done. But they, they have a lot of needs. It's, a, it's infrastructure challenged, not just roads, but energy capacity. That's a great way that innovation can help with storage, battery storage, et cetera, as we look to alternatives to diesel. But it's all this potential that needs infrastructure. And part of that infrastructure is education. And the Inuit are very tight-knit families. You can have three or four generations living in the same house. And so for a graduate of high school to think beyond high school to university, it's a challenge because they got to leave home. And some find it tough. Some don't last a semester. You know, they get homesick. They need to come home. So our chairman, Jim Nasso, picked up on a comment that the former Governor General Michelle Jean made several years ago and saying Canada is the only circumpolar nation without a university. So Agnico stepped up several years ago and said, look, we're willing to help get that started. For bricks and mortar, you know, we want to make sure that things are, are done properly. It's been a struggle. Not that people aren't appreciative, but it's how to get things done. And so basically, you've got to, we find as a company doing business there that is the single bi biggest part of the GDP from a business perspective is that you've got to sort of push those initiatives. And we're doing that. We're doing some things in the community around sports. We just feel that we'll be in Nunavut for, for many, many decades. And as Canadians, we should be championing places like Nunavut because it's going to be a huge value generator for this country over time as we develop the resources in Canada's far north. Fantastic. Sean, it's been a true pleasure having you here. You're an extremely deserving recipient of the 2017 Mining Person of the Year Award. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.
That does it for this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to our podcast sponsor, Yukon Mining Alliance. As always, you can help out the podcast by liking and sharing this podcast and subscribing to the podcast. All those things help out and give us visibility. And that does it for this episode. Talk to you later.